Okay. Hi, it's Helen Hebert uh, with Paper Talk. It's September 25th, 2016, and I'm here in Edwards, Colorado with Simon Barcham Green. It's an honor to meet Simon, who came to the hand paper making board retreat that we both attended this weekend. Hi, Simon. Hello there. How are you? I'm How's fine. Up? Good. Um, well, I had a question I want to just start off with. Um, and I really just kind of want to go with, through your history with paper, because okay. you, you have quite a long one. But you mentioned something that intrigued me, and obviously you've thought about it because you said it, that you, you know, that you said that we artists, most of us were artists today that we're meeting, and that we probably had like an aha moment with paper. Which you didn't okay. really have, yeah. yeah okay. Because you were born into it, yeah. So yeah, just well, tell the brief background of when paper making started in your family, and then your personal. Yeah, well, um, way back we were wheelwrights in the eighteenth okay. century. And what is a wheelwright? Uh, a, a wheelwright, uh, well, uh, is a person who makes wagon wheels originally, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, makes them out of wood, I assume, mostly wood spokes and this, that, and the other, and then right. puts on a, 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 well, in those days, a, a, an iron tire, and later a steel tire, a lot of heating up, hammering, and sweating, and this, that, and the other, and presumably the wheels had to be nicely balanced. I don't know. I, mean, yeah. I, know I just know that we were wheelwrights. Okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, in, by the time we got to 1812, my ancestor, or my ancestor's brother, John Green V, uh, had decided to rent this paper mill. And I think how he got into it was that he, he married a lady called Ann Turner, whose father ran another paper mill about 15, 20 miles away. And so how he got to go, if he worked for this other paper mill, uh, or whether he just fell in love with Anne, and then right. I don't know, but in some shape or form, he got into paper making, and <clears throat> we haven't got that much time, so we're right. trying to speculate right. too much about that. But a uh, hundred and fifty years later, I was born mm -hmm. roughly, uh, and so we've been doing it a while. And so, your father was working in the paper mill, or owned? My, my father and grandfather were working. Father in the paper and grandfather. Mill. And uh, by the time uh, I was in my early teens, um, it was decided, and I don't mean I decided, all of my father decided, it sort of was sort of taken for granted, I mm -hmm. think, in not a nasty, you've got to do this type way. I, um, and actually, looking back, my father might have been relieved if I could have done something else, because uh. you'll find out in a minute. Uh, so I went to university in Manchester in the north of England to study paper science, which was a very obscure subject. The, there were six of us in our um, bachelor's course, okay. which was supposed to accommodate up to 20. Uh -huh. um, and um, I got my degree and I went and worked in a number of other paper mills um, for a year, sort of like short internships. Mostly people my father knew in the trade. The I mean, hand mills, though? No, no, no all commercial. machine mills. Okay. Um, and, I mean, paper making as an industry, and uh, I think Susan, uh, that's Mackin, 
Clara and uh, who were talking to her right. house would agree because her family was in paper and mm-hmm. vein. It's an extremely friendly industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, there's heavy duty competition and stuff, but people know each other, they like each other, they exchange tips, this, that, and the other. And maybe more industries are like this than I realize, but it, it, it has always been a very friendly industry. Uh, so I'd worked in these other mills, and uh, not long after I came into the business, um, I found my father being trying to sell it because he didn't want all the employees to be unemployed uh, if he couldn't keep the business going. So it never um, struck me that uh-huh. really he should have told me this a few years before <laughs> I went down this rather specialist route. And I have absolutely no regrets because I've had a very lucky and fortunate life and having a passport, being a papermaker was quite good. A passport uh-huh. to all sorts of other interesting things, right. which was said to be sitting here up in the Rocky Mountains talking to you. It, yeah. it, it, I'm very lucky. Um, and so I joined the family business um, and at the time my father was the managing director um, but my grandfather was still coming into work every day mm-hmm. and it was I mean looking back I always feel very sorry for my father because he had bought a small paper machine which effectively saved the business uh, because the handmade side wasn't in the way it was run then viable right. um, but my grandfather was still in overall charge at the age of well eventually up to 85 wow. and you know I'm not uh, against people working when they're older uh-huh. I mean I'm only 17 I'm still working right. and I don't intend to quit at the moment but it was rather unfair to my father he had all the worries and anxieties and Everybody thought my grandfather was a wonderful man, which he was in many ways, but he was also very self-centred. Uh-huh. Um, and um, anyway, we carried on until uh, 1972, when uh, my father negotiated a sale of the business, but not the buildings and stuff, okay. to our rivals, W&R Bullston, a couple of miles away, also in Maidstone. Uh-huh. Um, and part of the deal was that both he and I went and worked for Bolsons for a few years and not part of the deal but they agreed to keep the handmade site going at Hale Mill. Um, what they really wanted was to transfer all of our business and contacts uh, in the filter paper business which was their main line of business and ours over to them. So they were eliminating a small competitor uh, and, and um, that was the main objective. Uh-huh. Um, so we went over and worked there and the mill was then run on a production basis by one of their staff, who was quite a decent man, but he hadn't got much idea or interest in it. And um, after two years, um, Bolston's, the business, who were called W&R Bolston, because William Bolston had founded it, being the protégé of James Watman, but a protégé mm. who was then not allowed to take over the Watman business as such, they merged with their main sales agent and it was a sort of bit of a management clean-out, mm-hmm. um, which included me, which suited me fine because although there were a lot of things I enjoyed there, I was a square peg in a round hole. I mean, just before we started the interview, you said, I know you like to talk. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think if I got an opinion, yeah. I will express it and yeah. if you don't like it, get rid of me. So they got rid of me. 
Um, I mean, I don't. I wasn't that awful or anything, but I didn't really quite fit their mm-hmm. corporate culture. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, they might have been better off having a few more dissidents like me. Uh, but they later became very successful for a while. Mm. Um, and then after a while, they didn't become so successful. They became part of GE Healthcare, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Um, and their business has now been moved to China, which is sort of ironic in paper-making terms. Um, and when they decided to have this management clear-out, they made me redundant which was fine, because otherwise I would have left. Right. And instead of just leaving, I got given a very decent offer. And they were a very decent company. I mean, they treated me and everybody else very well. And um, so I was quite pleased, because I had been thinking of running away to New Zealand to get away from all sorts of things in life, which I won't go into. <laughs> and instead of which, you know, I was given a payoff, and um, I went to visit some good friends of mine, artists and I picked up a bottle of bubbly on the way to celebrate Um, but they persuaded me that I should try and take back the handmade side of the business and run it in a different way Mm -hmm. Um, because both they and particularly me had ideas of ways we could change the business that we thought might make it viable Um, so for a while, we did extremely well, um, but then we had, you know, 1978, it was going well enough that I was beginning to think it could get dull. So, tell me a little bit about what it was like there, like, uh, so that was just the handmade side. Just the How handmade. many people were making well, how many it was, it, it was, when we took it over, we being... Um, person who had been the middle foreman, which was effectively the production mm-hmm. manager. We, we promoted him to be a board member who became production director. Mm-hmm. Um, and my friend, the artist, became, I called him the artistic director. Mm-hmm. And he always used to say that Terry, Terry was the pessimist, I was the optimist, and he was the Methodist. No, <laughs> sorry, I get it wrong. I don't know whether you can edit this or not, but he used to say uh, that... Uh, Terry was the pessimist, he, Graham Clark, was the optimist, and I was the Methodist, uh, meaning I am very methodical and uh-huh. try not to panic and try not to get over-related and you know, so on and so forth. And um, the, the main way we wanted to change it, it wasn't so much one, but recognition of the realities of life was that uh, using rags was increasingly a problem, not only getting a hold of them, very labour-intensive to process them. I mean, we weren't using very many at the time anyway. Um, Problems with effluent, because we didn't have an effluent plant, it went in the stream, which obviously was wrong, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So we decided to stop using rags entirely, Mm -hmm. and that was probably about about 30% of our fibre input was rags before then. So that needed quite a lot of adjustment to quite a lot of types of paper. Uh, we also decided to stop gelatin sizing, and anybody who's done much gelatin sizing will know that it's a time-consuming, yeah. erratic process. Right. You can size the paper and test it and find that it's actually inadequate, you have to do it again. And like everything in making paper and perhaps many other types of products, you make the sheets, you hopefully get it perfect, down, after that, it's all downhill because there are so many yeah. mistakes in the process. Right, I was interested in yeah. that fact that you said that earlier today. Yeah, have you found that sort of thing in doing 
your work, you know, you've done just exactly what you wanted, but then, you know, you cock up, uh, if you're not allowed to say that on tape, and you get a, a sort of lick up of one yeah, of the corners. Absolutely. Or a crease or yep. whatever. Yep. Uh, and uh, so there's, and gelatin sizing is a, a, something that can introduce so many things that go mm-hmm. wrong. And we used to, you know, charge 5% less for unsized paper than sized. Mm. Uh, whereas we should have been charging nearly twice as much for size as unsized. So we stopped doing that, mm-hmm. which we could only do because we pioneered using um, Acropel, that's a neutral size, which you put into the pulp. Internal, yeah. Internal sizing. Um, mm. But internal sizing that was um, acid-free, right. didn't harm the paper like rosin and alum right. and so on. And we got become very good at that, so we knew that we could do that. But it also meant that we needed to adjust the fibre content because you can use cotton linters for gelatin sizing and get quite a strong paper, but if you only use Acropel, you won't get a very strong paper. So uh-huh. we needed to look at uh, fibres that we were already using, like Abaca and uh, flax fibre that we were beginning to be able to get hold of as pulp. Because uh-huh. uh, likewise, we didn't want to pulp raw materials which needed cooking, cutting, all that sort of right, stuff. Right. So basically we sort of simplified the uh, whole production process and also we doubled the prices. Uh-huh. And it was a big gamble um, yeah. and we, we thought that our assessment was that people would pay more. Uh-huh. It was right. And actually, generally speaking, absolutely was right. Um, and after that, our prices continued to go up by more than inflation anyway. Uh-huh. Um, and you kept making the same papers you had been making, but you sort of adjusted, or were yes, the papers they, different? Well, they no. You call them the same thing. Well, or yeah, we well unless they were different, we called them the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the main things that we were making at the time that I took it over as a separate business again were our watercolor papers, uh, which. By that stage, we reduced down to one um, line, which is called Royal Watercolor Society, we called it RWS, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, approved by the Royal Watercolor Society, mm-hmm. who never approved anyone else's papers mm-hmm. because of problems they found with other people's papers, naming no names, but right. guess. <laughs> uh, and they... they um, sorry, uh, they uh, not they, but we wanted to continue that with, because we were making a lot of that paper. And um, you were selling it to stores or we, artists? Well, or? we were selling it to different levels. I think mm-hmm. our marketing scheme probably should have been changed a lot more than it was, but it was. we didn't change it very much. So we sold it in the UK uh, to uh, the um, artist Cullivan, so people like Winsor & Newton and Rowney. Uh, and they in turn told it, sold it to stores. We also sold it direct to stores. Uh, <clears throat> we had differential discounts and right, so on. Right, sure. And we sold it to artists at the recommended retail price. Mm-hmm. So we were dealing at all levels. Right. Um, and for export, in most cases, we had effectively an agent in mm-hmm. each country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it varied as to whether that was rigid or not. So in the USA, it was Andrews Nelson Whitehead, uh, okay. who formerly been the Stevens Nelson Company, uh, who were very good agents, um, but you know fiercely 
wanting to make the best of it for themselves, which is, after all, only fair that they should. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a very close relationship with Vera Freeman, who ran that mm-hmm. part of their business for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a, a lot of interesting times together, because Vera, um, some of your listeners may know, have known yeah. Vera, but she was a very particular character and interesting okay. woman. And, you know, when she, she came to... to America effectively as a refugee from the Hungarian Revolution uh-huh. and made a success as a businesswoman in a competitive uh, type of trade. Right. Not many people were doing that then, you know. Right. right. And yeah, Vera would never have thought of herself as a feminist, uh-huh. I don't think. Um, and in other countries, we had other agents and uh-huh. so on and so forth. Um, and usually they demanded exclusivity, certainly Andrew Nelson Whitehead did. So that, that was, the, with RWS, had been made out of cotton linters, gelatin-sized. Um, as soon as you take the gelatin size out, it's just not strong enough. Right. Uh, I mean, it was ironic. When I was working for Bullston's, they took over some of our Moldmay papers, mm-hmm. Bockingford, uh, which about a third of what they made had to be rejected because they got the sizing wrong. Um, I, I think most of the people concerned are no longer alive. So, uh, but you know, there wasn't the attention to detail needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and a paper called J. Green, which was the main uh, paper in the big print revolution in the 60s and early 70s. J. Green was the paper worldwide was leading. Arsh was known about, but not as popular um, as it is okay. now. Okay. Um, and um, so um, we had been when I was working for them, developing um, a version which we wanted to still internally size with aquapel, but gelatin size slightly and find a way of drying it rapidly because normally you have to dry gelatin very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't succeed in that whilst I was there. And a few years later, having got out of the art paper business again for a second time, they then decided to introduce a new paper which they called Watman, which was basically the J. Green Aquapel sized without the gelatin sizing. And mm-hmm. a lot of people liked it, but mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people quite rightly thought it was a bit soft and soggy. Right. Uh, and so the only way to overcome the lack of gelatin in RWS was to strengthen the fibre. And um, initially we... Um, did this by making out of about 40% Abaca and 60% Aquapel. Interesting. Uh-huh. Um, we've been using Abaca since the late 60s. Um, and that worked quite well. Um, but initially, because we had to re get the, the reapproval of the Royal Watercolor Society, um, we called it Cotman. We used the word Cotman for a very rough version of RWS years mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. So for a while we sold Cotman. The RWS then reapproved it, so we went back to using the name RWS. That that took um, a year or two, and it was the same for most of the other brands. So we went to using stronger fibers. Uh, after right. a while, we were able to get um, uh, flax fiber from Spain, uh-huh. uh, which is called Lincel, uh, which is a slight misnomer because I, th- I think of linen as being woven flax mm-hmm. fabric, mm-hmm. Right. or at least the thread, 
But this was a raw fiber. This was raw fiber, but also they were using um, the shorter fibers that uh, are not used for spinning. I see, yeah. Um, yeah. People in marriage use weird expressions like um, flax linters and or linen linters or whatever. Right. But linters is really a word that should only be used in for the context cotton. of cotton. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we increasingly went over that. The, uh, the, the flax fiber was not as strong as the abaca, but much more amenable. I mean, we were talking about drying today, and because mm-hmm. you use a, a lot of abaca, mm-hmm. and you beat it very fine, fine yeah. and mm-hmm. very wet, and therefore it's very difficult to dry. And uh, the, the, the flax, if you make it 100% flax, is not that easy to dry, but it's not as difficult as abaca. Nor is it a stronger. You think so. Have you ever used linen rag? I think that's the hardest. It's really hard um, to cooch. It's yeah. very soggy and um, slippery. Yeah. So, um, well, personally, no. I don't know that we did okay. really use okay. linen rag in my time because you couldn't get it in the quantities and quality that we wanted to. Obviously, yes, we used to right. use linen rag Where did in you the get the abaca? Um, initially, we got the abaca... From the Alpha Cell Corporation, Corpor- okay. Corporation in Lancashire, North, Northwest okay. England, um, who were using a mill that had originally been, well, either built or rebuilt to deal with Asparto fiber mm-hmm. from North Africa. Um, and they supplied it to us, I think, for about five years. Um, and then. Um, We got it from. It doesn't. Matter. I think Salesa in Spain. I'm not sure. I uh-huh. think they did abaca as well. Um, obviously, you can buy abaca direct from the Philippines. Right. But it's a bit of a palaver, and I have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I've seen abaca growing in the Philippines mm-hmm. for that matter. But that's. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's got enough time to talk about that sort of thing. But yeah. Um, so. Well, so how many people were making paper? On a daily basis, how many sheets a year? I just want to get a sense of. Well, um, most of the time when we were running the revived business, mm-hmm. we had about thirteen people. Okay. Uh, sometimes slightly more, and sometimes slightly less. When we started, um, we had only one vat running, and in my lifetime, only one vat had been running for a long time, mm-hmm. because. It was thought we couldn't train young people. Why would they be interested in this, that, and the other? And one of the things I think that we were very successful in was getting young people to learn to, and the skills to work at the back. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid none of them were women, um, mm-hmm. not only because of the traditional thing that women didn't work at the back as, but we never got women applying for jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got to the point where we didn't even get women applying for what were traditionally women's jobs. Um, and that's you know you can analyze that to death but that was the reality of the situation did you have a vatman a layman a kutcher uh yeah layer layer yeah um and um so there was always a three-person team Mm -hmm. um over about 10 years we not only built up the training but also the sales that we were running a second bat about a quarter of the time um which I'm something I was really pleased about. And obviously, had we been able to run a second VAT uh, nearly all the time, it would have changed the economy of the business mm-hmm. a lot. It, it helped anyway, because you know, you're still 
maintaining the buildings, you're still paying property taxes, right. you're still paying the managing director and the production director. So the overheads would have been much the same. Right. Uh, so we would, we would have had a more cost-effective business, and we were getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, after a very difficult first year, um, we were doing quite well. Hmm. Um, but then, as I said, I was always getting feeling it was a bit routine. Could it become dull in about 1978? Uh, and then um, our country made a historic mistake, as they've made another one recently, uh, in electing somebody called Margaret Thatcher, mm-hmm. who was the worst thing for British industry for, well, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a third of British production industry of all sorts closed down in her time. Mm-hmm. She boasted of being the first post-industrial society. She doubled the rate of sales tax. Mm-hmm. She doubled interest rates. Right. She doubled inflation. And she made the pound much more expensive. So it was a disaster for many small businesses. Right. Even so, we kept going mm-hmm. for eight years after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gradually were accumulating uh, bank loans and that sort of thing, Um, which wasn't the immediate reason we closed down, but it was the reason why we decided not to try and find other ways of staying open, I suppose. Um, So having said that, operating in the 180-year-old buildings has a lot of downsides, Um, Mm -hmm. and also I mentioned earlier on um, the rags and gelatin zone. You know, not compatible with modern environmental standards. We had no effluent plant. Right. We had a, a beautiful stream, and so on and so forth. And even without those things, you know, you wash down floors and things like that. I think that would have become a real problem at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And rightly so. I mean, I would have liked to have built myself a brand new paper making factory in a different sort of location with some way of dealing with those problems. I mean, it's not that what we were producing was particularly obnoxious effluent, but mm-hmm. standards have changed quite right. rightly. Sure. Um, what about, I'm just curious about, like, uh, apprenticeship or training. Yeah. You mentioned it a little bit, but yeah. was there any official? No, the, the old-style apprenticeships, I think, continued until about 1965, possibly, mm-hmm. when it was getting more and more difficult actually to get people to do that because mm-hmm. the sort of general type of deal in the old days in England was you took on apprenticeship, you signed a deed, it was a seven-year deed between the uh, apprentice and the uh, employer, mm-hmm. um, and, and they learned the skills um, and you paid them very little. Mm-hmm. until they completed their apprenticeship. And that became increasingly unattractive. And right. although in recent years, uh, what we call modern apprenticeships have been reintroduced into England and generally very successfully, they're not really the same idea at all. Um, most craft apprenticeships meant you got paid virtually diddly squat um, right. uh, until you were... Trained. Trained. Yeah. Uh, and it took seven years... Well, it really needs to take quite that long, I'm not sure. But right. So and it withered because my father and grandfather saw no future in it. Mm-hmm. Um, when we restarted, we um, 
change the I can't remember the terms we used, but um, we regarded the young people coming in as trainees. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't get paid very well, mm-hmm. but as they got better, they got paid more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also reintroduced a form of piecework, not the old form, which was very complicated and was pure piecework, really, you know, per sheet, effectively, and there were scales according to the type of paper and all sorts of things. Uh, we paid them per hour, but we gave them a bonus based on the number of sheets they made for different grades, mm. but with an adjustment for the percentage of second quality as opposed to first quality. Ah. And it was partially successful, but what it was successful in producing was um, a number of young men uh, who became very good at it. Uh-huh. Although they never had quite the absolute dedication to absolute quality that you absolutely need uh, it was the seventies, you know. It, right. You know, it was remarkable the quality we did get out of them, and you know, they we had some very nice young people. Funny enough, when we closed, we wanted to do it in a rational and controlled way, mm-hmm. even though our production director had gone off to run a public house almost without notice. So we had mm-hmm. to find ways of operating without him. And uh, so we decided that we would use up all the raw materials we had as far as possible um, and um, give all the staff proper notice, much more than they were legally entitled to. Mm-hmm. And it was surprising because most of them got jobs in the uh, telecommunications industry huh. almost immediately. Huh. And people started leaving. Obviously, we didn't want to hold on to them longer than they wanted. Right. Very quickly, we were running out of people. So um, I rang up Norman Peters, uh, uh, many people have seen pictures of Norman, um, who'd been retired for about five years, and said, look, this is a bit difficult, could you come and help us out? Mm-hmm. And he came back in. He always was very smart, wore polished black shoes, mm-hmm. neat trousers, white shirt, rolled up his sleeves, and made a thousand sheets as they'd never been away. You know? oh and he would go home in the evening looking as they'd done their work. Um, at 75. Um, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, what was the sheet count per day? Well, obviously it varied according yeah. to make, but, I mean, typically that sort of 1,000-sheet figure uh-huh. would be for Imperial 140 pounds, that's 300 grams square metre, watercolour paper, right. uh, or, or Crisbrook printmaking paper. Um, sometimes you can make faster than that, um, and heavier weights or stronger papers like Chatham Vellum, which was 100% flax, obviously was slower. Um, and, and do uh, those all get hung to dry the um, same day? And no, I mean, it takes, even with the changes we've made, I was going to say improvements, but yeah. just different ways of doing yeah. things. Um, it took a while because you had to form the sheets, cooch them, press them, right. uh, lay them off into posts, um, and depending on what surface they were, they were either pack-pressed or cold-pressed, to a different terminology, but that means putting um, a, a, a lump of paper uh, about three inches thick between zinc plates and putting them in a hydraulic press under a moderate pressure overnight, okay. and then taking them out and uh, parting them. So that meant... Um, the 
person doing that who was normally a woman. I'm sorry to keep mentioning gender, but I think you know no, it's part it's of the traditional craft, yes, and it's yes. not the way people look at it nowadays. But it right. was based on how it had been done for a very yeah. long time, and I think that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the the parter would um, uh, just separate all the sheets out and restack them perfectly. You know, they're still the, wet. They're still damp. Still, they're still damp. They're about fifty yeah. percent moisture, okay. and then they were often pressed a second time. It depended on the paper and so on. And then they were dried on a steam hinge. You dry it to a cylinder if they were not surface, usually called cold-pressed in the U.S. And then glazing was separate if they were glazed. So the steam cylinder just dried them immediately? Um, Yeah, it took about five minutes to go through, very quick. It was was, uh, actually the same sort of drying cylinders that you got on a paper machine, but running very slowly. Okay. Um, and um, so that was fine for cold press, or which would later become hot pressed mm-hmm. if it was going to be glazed. Uh, with the um, rough surface paper, which was almost entirely watercolor paper, after it was uh, pressed and laid in the vat house, it wasn't pressed again, and it was then put on a, an air drying machine, which again dried it in about um, five or ten minutes depending on the weight but not going through not not in contact with anything, with anything. so it, it was a, a you know pure air drying system except it was quick oh, it was that's what I need for based my on hot air pieces. <laughs> okay. so for your for the abaca pieces that well I, I think you'd dry. get even more deformity they than you do crazy. yeah, yeah. No, it would go completely yeah. crazy I mean, when we first started using Abaca, we, uh, you know, we had to learn about its different shrinkage yeah. characteristics and stuff. It's a difficult fibre mm-hmm. and a wonderful fibre. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we decided to resume making our Chatham vellum calligraphy paper. Mm-hmm. And our first decision was, well, we'll try making out of 100% Abaca. And it went over our drying machine, and as it came off, it rolled up into little tubes about an inch diameter, and there's nothing you can do with them after that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with flax, it was okay. Uh, the The paper that went through the air dryer, of course, uh, didn't come out flat. Right. And um, there's a lot of confusion, I think, in terminology here, uh, because people tend to talk about um, uneven paper as being cockled. Mm-hmm. But actually, the correct way of looking at it, or whatever words you use, is we called it hubber in English, H-U-B-B-E-R, mm-hmm. which means that it's an unevenness that with time will disappear. Uh, whereas a cockle is some sort of deformity introduced uh, uh-huh. in the drying process. You will never get rid of a cockle. Right. Uh, whereas hubber, with time, you will deal with. But even so, I mean, it takes... At least three months, uh, and um, what it involved was it came out of the drying machine, you stacked it up nicely, you put a, a wooden board uh, or a, a, an alloy plate on top, mm-hmm. and left it to stand. After a few days, you put a weight on top. You couldn't put the weight on top too cr- quickly, or you start creasing it. Yeah. And then, after a few weeks, you'd sheet it, which meant taking two stacks of paper. And I can't do this on uh, audio, but interleaving right. them. So you take one sheet off one stack and lay it down on a new stack, 
one sheet of the other stack. I'm waving my arms around rather pointless. Uh, and so you interleave the two, and then you because the two stacks have kind of become similar in their hover. Well, well similar in state, but the, yeah. the waves wouldn't be exactly the same. So right. in the mixed one, you get different waves. Yeah, right. Uh, and then you again put a plate on uh -huh. top. Then you put a weight on top. Uh, I mean, we 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 had uh, dry presses that, obviously, in the old days, were used a lot for pressing paper when it was dry to remove this. I never really understood how that worked because if you put too much pressure on hover paper too soon, you'll just crease it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, we were lucky. We we kept most of this um, paper that was maturing in the loft, so the Moist air was coming in and out, and um, you had the uh, diurnal, the daily change, so it warmed up in the day, cooled uh -huh. out at night, right. changes in humidity, so the paper worked its way out. Uh -huh. And gradually, the waviness, the hoveriness was worked out of it. Right. Um, and uh, it took a long time, and when you were gelatin sizing rough surface paper, double all that because you had to make the paper waterly oh, yeah. uh, and dry it, air dry it and originally in the lofts rather than with the machine and then you had to um, when it was flat enough it didn't have to be perfectly flat but if it wasn't if it was too wavy you crease it in the size machine mm -hmm. take it out of the size machine uh, dry it in the lofts for sure you couldn't ever put gelatin size paper through the rapid dryer, right. and being gelatin size, it was much slower to mature, so right. a lot of paper was six, nine, twelve months before it went out of the mill, yeah. all money tied up, you know, and yeah. customers not wanting to wait. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, yeah. nowadays, I mean, in the days of just-in-time and Amazon delivery by drone, I mean, yeah. people would never oh, yeah. possibly understand how they had to wait six months for a, a, a stock item. I mean, we didn't usually keep people waiting for stock items. We just had to have enough stock. Right. Um, things right. going through the system. Right. right. Okay, we're going to wind down, but I, I wanted to ask about, well, sort of innovation in paper. You talked today at your talk about this, um, what was it, the speaker paper, liner paper? The loudspeaker cones. Yeah, yes. loudspeaker cones. Yeah. That... Um, you developed how to make them in one piece, is that right? Um, yeah, like that? I'm, I, unfortunately we don't have much in the archives, I have a very mm -hmm. large archives, but there's not much written down about loudspeaker cones apart from we made you know, 200 of a certain size and pattern not much more than that okay. um, but when uh, radio came in and other types of um, electrically induced mm -hmm. sound mm -hmm. um, so you had a magnet with a bit of metal in it vibrating that was in the centre of a cone and the cone was you know, exactly a cone so you took a sheet of paper cut a disc out of it cut a, a, a wedge out of that and, and pulled it, it up and then yeah. glued it together yeah. a uh, and um, Obviously, that join, two layers of paper overlapping right. with glue, yeah. must have some acoustic problems with it. 
mm-hmm. which at first people were obviously so thrilled that it worked at all, that it didn't matter. Um, but as time goes by, at some point, somebody asked us, and I have no idea who, mm-hmm. could you not do this seamlessly without this in it? Um, and somehow or other we came up with a way of doing it. Uh-huh. And then it became more sophisticated because people like to have those little ripples that you have in loudspeaker cones, which sort of allowed the back to vibrate uh-huh. differently from... I don't know, really. I don't know anything yeah. about the loudspeaker cones as such. Um, and the way we did that was that we uh, had the uh, wove uh, wire that the loudspeaker cone was formed on pressed, uh, well, it, that was seen very carefully or, or right. uh, soldered together, I'm not sure exactly, uh, had these ripples and forms. We had hundreds of different moulds to make this stuff, and that sat in what you might call a decal box, so the, um, if anybody, if any listeners have ever used the yeah. British Standard Sheet Machine, you have a, basically a cylinder that you can fill up with water from the bottom, put a measured amount of pulp in the top, uh, stir it all up, pull the plug out with a bit of vacuum, suck it out, mm-hmm. and there you have a sheet formed onto uh, the mesh. Right. And I think after that, it was taken out, placed over a exactly similarly shaped piece of metal, probably brass, and you sort of blew the young cone off the wire onto this. Then there was another piece that fitted over the top and put in a hat press. So, you know, established technology of hat presses and the felt or whatever it was made of was pressed into the shape with steam. Uh, And once it had been steam dried, then you took it out, trimmed it, tied it up, presumably put it in a box and sent it off to... Right. Loud speaker makers, so right. they were the customers. Yeah. Um, and in the 1930s, we made huge quantities, I think millions, um, and it saved the business from going bankrupt during the Great uh, Depression. Wow. Um, but it's unfortunate that we just have a very limited amount in the records about this, and mm-hmm. it would be interesting to know who approached us first. Right. I mean, did they come with, could you do it this way, you know, the ones where they had a clear idea technically of how to do it, or whether they said, what we want is it to look exactly like this. And um, you figured it yeah, out. Yeah, they were always black. Uh-huh. And, I mean, what I found in India that was they were using umbrella trimmings as a raw material. Now, whether we did that or not, I don't actually know. Um, mm. I mean, in the archives, there probably is more information than I realise my wife has done one doctorate on our archives, and part of the reason she did it was to get and publish in some shape or form a better understanding of what was in there and the potential, right. and to produce a sort of roadmap for future researchers. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's probably enough for another five or ten doctorates looking at different oh, aspects. Sure. And we've got stuff on social conditions in the 19th century, right. the technical stuff. Uh, the commercial aspect, the, if you like, sociological interaction between mm-hmm. uh, the family in dealing with customers, suppliers. It was all very interesting stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had my great, 
grandfather John Barcham Green went into partnership uh, with uh, a chap called Thomas, uh, that was his surname, I can't remember his first name, mm-hmm. uh, to make paper out of straw, which mm. had been developed in the 1860s, was just beginning to be made, and there was a mill about half a mile down from ours which made paper out of straw. In fact, the road has been called Straw Mill Hill for ever since. Mm. Uh-huh. And uh, he developed an understanding and expertise of making paper out of straw, and he approached my great-great-grandfather and said, can we go into business together? And originally they had a third partner called Stevens, who was a solicitor, uh, mm-hmm. that's an attorney. Uh, okay. And they set up a new business uh, and converted the mill in another part of the country, about 100 miles away, to make paper out of straw. The, the, the funny thing was that as soon as straw started catching on, uh, the farmers who previously didn't know what to do with straw, they usually burnt it or whatever, mm-hmm. very quickly realised they were onto good things. Selling straw, what had been a cheap raw material, became right. an expensive one. And you can imagine mm-hmm. the problems with straw is produced once a year, it's very bulky, you've got to yeah. store it dry, transport it, this, that and the other. And the result of that was that people started looking for other raw materials, and the main one was Esparto uh, from North Africa and mm-hmm. some from Spain. Mm-hmm. And so our business, Thomas and Green, got more into making paper out of Esparto. Uh, but Thomas was constantly travelling. He travelled all over the country about all sorts of reasons, looking for equipment, sales, this, that and the other. And he wrote very long letters to my great-great-grandfather about what he was doing with ideas, asking for responses, um, writing in great detail about his various stomach problems and other ill health and so on. Uh, very, very long, and it was uh, unusual because most people then wrote very short letters very frequently, uh-huh. and they very often wrote on a, a small note paper a couple of sentences, right. uh, stuck it in an envelope, sent it off, it was delivered the next morning or sooner. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, my great-grandparents used to send each other letters and reply at lunchtime, yeah. almost to the point of, are you coming home for lunch? And if so, what would you like to eat? You know, and, and then like texting. It was today. like texting, yeah. and it was yeah. abbreviated wording like texting. So yeah. it was sort of halfway between texting and email, uh-huh. and uh-huh. it was pretty you know, badly written, but they could read it. Uh, it might have been slightly better spelt than texting. Were they in the same house? Like uh, no, they, they didn't do it in the same house, but delivered? I mean, he would send <laughs> letters almost from the mill to the house, which was a quarter of a mile away. So someone would just run it over? No, through the post office. The, post the, post the postman office. came oh, four or five times time. a day, yeah. I think, at the okay. early times. Okay. It's absolutely unbelievable. But, wow. uh, uh, <laughs> but Thomas used to write these long screeds, and I mean, Maureen spent absolutely ages going through them. Um, and you know, not always easy to read. He had, yeah. didn't have awful writing, but it, Victorian writing is not particularly easy to read. Yeah. You get to learn it, you know. Right. Um, so, you know, it was interesting the way that, that this business social, you know, they were friends and business partners, and uh, right. um, that's hmm. you know insight in the way things happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not that long ago, really. Right, right. Nobody else has records like that, anyway. Yeah. At all. 
And so where are your archives? Well, I still keep them in Maidstone, not at the mill, but I rent some space that I keep them uh-huh. in. Um, and I'm still looking for a home for them, but uh, I'm yeah. making some progress on them, and I can't talk about that, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I think that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much. It's a lot longer than you thought, I think. But... No, that's all right. So Thanks, do you edit these a little bit or not? Because uh, we stumble, well, I stumble a bit. But, uh, no, it's fine. Uh, it would be nice